Hans Christian Andersen tells a famous story that many of you may have heard before. Uh, it's the famous story of an emperor who loved wearing clothes and spent all of his people's money on purchasing them. He had a different set of clothes for each hour and was without a doubt one of the finest dressed men in all the land. One day, uh, two swindlers showed up claiming to be weavers and they entered the city and proclaimed that they were capable of making the finest, the lightest, the most magnificent clothes that the world has ever seen. So extraordinary was the cloth that they used to make these clothes that it was invisible to anyone who was incompetent or stupid. So hearing of their amazing talent, the foolish emperor thought he could use this cloth to weed out some of the undesirables of his city. So he paid the swindlers this enormous sum of money, and they set out to create the clothes, knowing that they would only need to go through the motions to accomplish that. So the emperor sent several advisors to gauge their progress along the way, and they reported the cloth was magnificent, not wanting to appear unworthy of seeing nothing at all, because the cloth didn't exist. But finally, the clothes were finished, and the swindlers already have counted the gold and the jewels they've received, and a procession was arranged to show off the emperor's new clothes, and the entire city, city gathered together in the center to view these new clothes that the emperor had. And so having been dressed by the swindlers, who remarked how wonderful he looked and how light the cloth appeared on him, he appeared before his people. Now, the people, having heard of the weaver's abilities and the cloth's properties, were amazed and offered thunderous applause to the beaming emperor as he stood there. None of them were willing to admit that they hadn't seen a thing, for if anyone did, then he was either stupid or unfit for the job that he had. Never before had the emperor's clothes been such a success. And while expressing admiration at the emperor's new invisible clothes, a small boy could be heard in the crowd crying out, But the emperor has no clothes! This morning, we're going to see another emperor who has no clothes. Israel appoints Saul as the first king of Israel. And if you've been paying attention, which I trust you have, as we've been making our way through the first eight chapters of 1 Samuel, you've seen that this is not a crowning moment for the people of Israel. In fact, you remember even last week, as we considered Samuel's words to the people of Israel and their demand for a king, that they would come to regret this. Not that they would regret necessarily having a king over them. That is something that God prophesied back in the book of Genesis. But the kind of king that they were desiring, a king like the other nations, they would come to regret because that king would take and take and take and take from them. Now, some suggest that the account of Saul that we begin this morning, Israel's first king, which starts in chapter 9 and kind of goes through chapter 15 until we get to the, to the beginning of David's reign, or at least David's coming on the scene. His reign doesn't really properly happen until we get into 2 Samuel. But nonetheless, people tend to view Saul as sort of this good character who becomes bad over time, kind of that the narrative is organized in this sort of positive to negative fashion. Chapters 9 through 15 kind of tell of Saul's rise 
and then, or sorry, chapters 9 through 11 kind of tell of Saul's rise, and then chapters 12 through 15 kind of tell of his fall. But the narrative's not as neat and tidy as that. In fact, as we're going to see this morning, it's a little more complicated because 1 Samuel paints a little bit more of a nuanced picture of this character that we're going to come to see as Saul. It's easy to picture Saul's rise maybe at the beginning and his fall at the end, but actually it's not as one-dimensional as that because it becomes clear that as we know in our own lives, no human being is perfectly good or perfectly evil. Instead, every person's intentions and actions are somewhat mixed. And we're going to see that this morning because at each moment of Saul's rise to the throne, there is the seeds of his coming fall already there. We'll see this in three stages. One in chapter 9, one in chapter 10, and one in chapter 11. And this is going to provide us, I believe, a good opportunity to show that Jesus is really the only perfect king that exists, and he's the savior that Saul needs, and he's the savior that we all need. Three points this morning. We're going to look at one in chapter 9, one in chapter 10, and one in chapter 11. And the overarching idea this morning that I want us to consider is that just because Saul is anointed by God, just because he's accredited by God, and just because he makes great achievements for God, doesn't mean he's approved by God. In fact, Israel has asked for something, namely a king like the nations, and God is going to give them that king as a form of discipline for the nation. So let's consider that as we walk through these three chapters this morning. First of all, an anointing by God doesn't mean approval with God. An anointing by God doesn't mean approval with God. Chapter 9 seems to show Saul's ascent to the throne of Israel as a purely positive thing. He first goes up to the city in verse 11. Then he goes up to the high place at the center of the city in verse 14. Then he goes up to the head of the table in verse 22. And then up to the roof of the house to spend the night in verse 25. Up, 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 the narrative goes. He's just moving right up to the throne. But at the, and at the end of the chapter, he's anointed by God as the king of Israel. Let's begin our reading in chapter 9, verse 25. And I do hope you'll have your Bible in front of you as we'll be reading some different texts in these three chapters this morning. 1 Samuel 9, verse 25. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. And then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servants to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies, and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. However, things aren't always what they seem. Look back at verse 16 in the same chapter, chapter 9, verse 16. 
Actually, we'll begin at verse 15. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Notice that Samuel mentions the king, Saul, is going to restrain the people of Israel. This doesn't necessarily indicate a positive direction in where this kingship is going. Saul's going to be a source of restraint on the people rather than liberty for the people that the people so desired. This is what Samuel warned about in chapter 8. This will also be confirmed next week, Lord willing, as we look at Samuel's farewell address, his retirement speech of sorts, in chapter 12. But first of all, I want you to notice what happens at this anointing. Saul's anointing doesn't indicate a permanent appointment for him as king. Consider Saul's origin. Look back at the very first verses of chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin, talking about Saul's father, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechareth, son of Aphithah, or Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Verse 3, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. Now in verse 1, Saul is described as from this tribe of Benjamin. He's an Israelite. But Benjamin was the least of the tribes of Israel by Saul's own admission later in this own chapter. This tribe had notoriously killed a Levite concubine in Judges 19, which caused the other 11 tribes to go to war against them and wipe them out. And here we have the first king of Israel coming from this very tribe. In Genesis 35, 11, this is exactly what was promised to Benjamin. If you remember, Benjamin was Jacob's favorite son. We read in Genesis 35, 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Here's the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy over Benjamin that there would be a Benjaminite, a son of Benjamin, who would come to rule as a king among the people of Israel, and that is Saul. However, Jacob had also prophesied that the kings of Israel would come from Judah. In Genesis 49.10, we read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, which seems to imply that Saul is not going to establish a dynasty. He's going to be a temporary king of sorts. And this very transition is what we will see play out over the course of 1 Samuel as the kingship moves from Saul to David. David is of the tribe of Judah. And it's of that tribe that the scepter will not depart. Yet even here, there is mercy. Even though there will be a transition between a king from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul, to a king of the tribe of Judah, David, this transition only happens, why? Remember Genesis 44? It's in the story of the Joseph narrative. Joseph has already ascended to power in Egypt, and he's, his brothers have come. It's a famine in the land. 
And his brother, he, the brothers don't yet know that this is Joseph. But Joseph knows it's the brothers. And he tests the brothers here by putting a cup in one of the brothers' bags to see whether or not the, the men would be honest with him. And do you remember what happened? That cup was found in Benjamin's bag. But who interceded to save Benjamin? It was Judah. And so this is foreshadowing the reality that this kingdom will only be transferred from Benjamin to Judah as Judah substitutes himself in Benjamin's place. And so this transition is even more symbolic if you think about it because it anticipates the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf who, like David, descended from the tribe of Judah and comes to the throne. Why? Because he offered himself as a substitute for his people. So even in this transition, we get Jesus foreshadowed. And even in this transition, there is mercy revealed. Secondly, Saul's anointing doesn't just indicate a permanent appointment. Also, Saul's anointing doesn't indicate a competent administrator. Beginning in chapter 9, verse 4, we're taken on an unlikely journey, searching for some lost donkeys. It comes out of nowhere, almost. Saul is unable to find his father's missing donkeys. This is where the narrative goes in chapter 9. We meet Saul, this tall, handsome man, looks like a great ruler, can't even find his father's donkeys. What's that meant to indicate? Well, if you remember, in chapter 16, and we'll get there, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, what's happening with David when he's called from the field? He's found among his father's animals, shepherding them faithfully. Here we have a picture that Saul is not going to be a faithful shepherd for Israel. He can't even keep track of his own family's donkeys. He's already lost his responsibility. Israel has forsaken God as king for a man who can't find his own father's donkeys. The search is unsuccessful in chapter 9, and so Saul's servant suggests that they go and consult Samuel. Samuel's unnamed servant or sorry, Saul's unnamed servant, proves to be more resourceful than the king. Because the king's out there, I can't find my father's donkeys, I can't find him, I can't find him. Saul's, and and the, the servant of Saul says, well, let's go talk to Samuel. He suggests they seek out the prophet, and when then Saul objects that they have nothing to present to Samuel, the servant, not Saul, is the one who says, it's okay, I've got some money. I'll make sure that we can get to see him. Saul has nothing. He's not even prepared for the trip. So both in the idea and the execution, the servant of Saul is presented as more competent than Saul himself. We're meant to see something here. We're meant to see the incompetent administration that Saul will demonstrate in the lives of the people of Israel. And yet even here, there's mercy. Because with the help of some young women, they do find Samuel but do not recognize him once they meet him. And when they do discover it, Samuel, Saul is invited to eat with Samuel after reassuring him that the donkeys are safe. Now, why this story? Well, I've already indicated one reason. It's to illustrate that Saul is an incompetent shepherd. But there's, a, there's another reason. 1 Samuel 9 recalls the marriage of Isaac in Genesis 24. There, Abraham gave his servant the task of finding a wife for Isaac among his own people. And the servant meets a woman at the well who turns out to be Rebekah, and she agrees to come back to be Isaac's wife. But first, the servant must what? 
have a meal in the family's home with her father Laban. Now in our text, Samuel meets some women at the well who direct him to a meal, to a feast. However, Saul does not marry any of these women, but this is not because Saul is not going to be a husband. In fact, as king, he is to become the husband of Israel. He's taking God's place. The feast is a celebration of Saul's appointment as the royal husband of God's people. And even as he was lost in looking for donkeys, nevertheless, what were donkeys? Donkeys were the animals on which kings rode. Which is why in Zechariah 9, we're prophesied of a king coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus does that. It wasn't just a manifestation of his humility. That's the typical, oh, he's on a donkey. No, donkeys are what kings rode on. And it was Christ's public declaration that he is the king that the people say he is. Now, in search for these royal beasts, these donkeys, Saul was providentially led to Samuel, who anointed him as king over Israel. And this was ultimately fulfilled on Palm Sunday as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as God's truly anointed one, as his Messiah, as his king. Now, he was not literally anointed with oil, but his name is Jesus, and he is called Christ, Messiah, which means anointed one. And his kingship is both permanent and competent. And so we get this picture, even in Saul's journey, of a future king that would come. That's Saul's anointing. It didn't mean that he was approved by God. Secondly, we're going to look at Saul's accrediting. And accrediting from God doesn't mean approval with God. This is in chapter 10. First, I want you to see that just like Saul's anointing, his accrediting doesn't indicate a permanent appointment for him as king. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 2, after Saul's anointed as king, Samuel instructs Saul concerning remarkable events that will further confirm the Lord, that the Lord has set him apart as king over Israel. And he gives him three signs. Samuel, as a prophet, tells him there will be three signs that will confirm that God has chosen Saul as king over Israel. Because Saul doesn't believe that a king can come from the tribe of Benjamin. He says in chapter 9, verse 21, Am I a Benjaminite? What are you doing, Samuel? I can't be the one. So Samuel gives him three signs. First of all, he gives him a kingly sign that two men will meet him at Rachel's tomb and tell him the donkeys have been found. Second, he gives him a priestly sign, that three men will meet him at Bethel to offer him bread. And third, there's a prophetic sign where a group of prophets will meet at Gibeah, a city in Israel, with whom Saul will prophesy and show himself to be a prophet as well. So all three signs that Samuel gives to Saul is meant to accredit him as the leader of Israel, indicated with the verification from all the offices of leadership in Israel, prophet, priest, and king. However, the most significant sign is in verses 9 through 13. Look there with me. Chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. When he turned back, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. This is the third sign. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? 
Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now, the confirmation provided by these signs would seal Saul for the reality that God had chosen to anoint him as prince over the people. However, somewhat curiously, Saul doesn't mention this at all in the remaining part of chapter 10. In fact, when he comes to his uncle's house, he does not tell him what Samuel told him about the coming kingdom in verses 14 to 16. But a lack of permanence appears to be in the works already. Remember, the people had asked in chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, what has happened to Saul since he was prophesying? They ask, who's the father of these prophets? The answer is Samuel is the father of these prophets. Since Saul is a prophet, he's also now a son of Samuel. If Saul then is a son of Samuel, he's no longer a son of Kish, who's his biological father. So the implication is that Samuel has in some sense adopted Saul as one of his own, as a prophet like him. Just as Eli's sons were replaced by the adopted son Samuel, now Samuel is being replaced by his adopted son in terms of leadership, Saul. But where's all this heading? Who will Saul adopt in the future? Well, he will adopt a quasi-son named David. Even though he was a faithful, he has a faithful son. Saul, we will see, has a faithful son named Jonathan. David will become Saul's son-in-law through marriage to Saul's daughter. And so the kingdom will be passed from Saul to David. Yet even here, there's mercy. Because the ultimate trajectory is 2 Samuel 7.14, where God says of David's son, I will be his father and he shall call, he, he, he shall be my son. My son, God says. Not Eli's son, not Samuel's son, not Saul's son, not David's son. David's son is going to be my son. God himself will adopt this king of Israel as his own son. And it was at his baptism that God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was at his transfiguration on Mount Hermon that God said, this is my son, listen to him. It is at his resurrection that according to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, God declared him to be the son of God with power. And it is on this that God puts the Holy... It is on this son that God puts his Holy Spirit without measure. At the time of Saul, God's spirit was largely restricted to leadership figures. The spirit of God would come and go setting them apart for divine service. But Numbers eleven twenty nine foretells Moses' wish that God would put his spirit on all his people. And Moses' wish would be communicated in reality in Acts chapter 2 as the Holy Spirit comes on the early church. And in the anointing of Christ with the spirit at his baptism, all of us who in, are in Christ by faith have been baptized with and are indwelt with the Holy Spirit in a far greater measure than Saul ever experienced. The Spirit which empowered Jesus according to his humanity for his, hum for his mission empowers us for our lives of service to him to be and make disciples of all nations until he comes again. Now Saul's accrediting doesn't just indicate that it's not permanent, but Saul's accrediting also doesn't indicate that he's a competent administrator. Again, we see seeds of his fall already present in chapter 10. Saul calls the people of Israel together in chapter 10 at Mizpah so that Saul can be publicly chosen as king. Sorry, Samuel called them together. And here, Saul is miraculously chosen by Lot. And he's then enthusiastically received by Israel once they see his appearance. And then they all return home. 
Yet what happens when God's king is chosen is that God's king can't be found. Look at chapter 10, verses 17 to 21. This is the moment. Saul's coronation before the people. Where is he? We can't find him. He's as lost as his donkeys were. Look at verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Man, that's a rough reminder from Samuel. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you've said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the, Mat- of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. <laughs> God reveals where he is in verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. What? You're coming out ceremony? The prophet of the Lord Samuel has given you the word of God, confirmed his word with three signs that you're to be the king, all of which come to pass. And when the lots have fallen to him, He's nowhere to be found. He's hiding in the military gear. This is the king you wanted? This is the king who's going to fight your battles for you? Really? We should have some questions. Israel would. It seems that Saul is hiding himself more out of cowardice and refusal to do what God has called him to do. The story begins with a quest to find some lost donkeys, and now the king, who is set to ride on a donkey himself in royal majesty, can't even be found. This is hardly an auspicious start for one who would go before them to fight their own battles. But the people are so blinded by their determination to have a king that they say the following in verse 23 and 24. Then they ran and took him from there. They had to go grab him, pull him out. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Okay, tall coward. But tall, he's tall. And then verse 24, Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Saul is described in chapter 9, verse 2, as handsome and tall, and this is reinforced as what is most appealing to him about the Israelites. Saul looked the part, didn't he? He didn't act the part. And yet we know that the opposite was what marked David off. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. This is in contrast to Saul and the people of Israel. They only looked at the outward appearance. They never considered Saul's heart. They only said he looks the part of a king. He's handsome. He's tall. Yes, he's incompetent, but he's our king. He's our incompetent king. Be careful what you ask for. Israel, be careful what you ask for. Yet even here, dear ones, there's mercy. Saul is in great contrast not only to David, but he's in contrast to our Savior, isn't he? Isaiah 53 describes our king as one who had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by man, men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Yet surely he, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his stripes were healed. Praise the Lord that we have a truly beautiful king, but not one like Saul, not a handsome, tall, regal king, but a humble, self-sacrificial king who gave up his life for us. Praise God for a king who didn't hide from his assignment, but set his face like flint to go to the cross. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you, as you, you will, Father. And through the agony of Gethsemane, he endured which led him right to the cross where he suffered for us, bled and died to bring us peace and heal our wounds. Praise God for our greater, than, greater, than, greater king than Saul, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly and finally, we've seen his anointing. That didn't guarantee approval by God. His accrediting with signs. That didn't guarantee approval by God. Finally, his achievement doesn't mean approval with God. In chapter 11, which John read for us at the beginning, Saul launches the first key military conquest of his kingship. It's the, it's the, it's the coming out. Is this king who we, who we think he is? Is this king going to fight our battles and deliver us from our enemies? Well, two things again I want you to notice about this achievement. First of all, as we've seen already, Saul's achievement doesn't indicate a permanent appointment. See, the goal for Israel in having a king was to have someone, as we've seen, fight their battles. Now, in chapter 11, the Ammonites are neighboring enemies of Israel. And the king, Nahash, is terrorizing Israel and has already besieged the city of Jabesh-Gilead, which has offered to unconditionally surrender to the Ammonites. And yet, in order to accept their terms, Nahash demands that they be mutilated. Terrible. The leaders of Jabesh-Gilead need a deliverer, which gives Saul his opportunity to prove that he is powerful as a king. The Spirit of God comes upon him, and Saul responds in a righteous way. Notice verse, chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. Now behold, Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now this is the same language that Judges fifteen fourteen uses in regards to Samson you remember, who defeated the Philistines. The language is setting up Saul as a kind of Samson-like figure as the Spirit of God empowers him to be this victorious deliverer for Israel. And the Lord did all this, remember, in spite of Samson's faithless behavior previously. And this is true in Saul's case as well. In spite of Saul's faithless behavior, the Spirit of God rushes upon him and leads his people into battle. God's Spirit Rushing upon someone is no sign that they have a place as a permanent appointment for, for, by God. Yet even here, there's mercy. Just as Samson was one in a long line of judges, and Saul will be the first in a long line of kings, it's still the Lord who sends his spirit and brings victory, not the leader. Further proof that Israel didn't need a king like the nations. The thing that helps Saul win this battle is the spirit of God. Not Saul's handsomeness and not his height. It was the Spirit of God. 
The military victory in which Saul leads the Israelites is not due to Israel's having a king nor any merit on Israel's part, but solely due to the mercy and grace of God who hears the cries of his people and once again comes to their rescue. So Saul's achievement doesn't indicate a permanent appointment, and Saul's assignment, or sorry, achievement doesn't indicate a competent administrator. Now Saul is filled with holy anger here, and he calls the men of Israel forth in the name of the king and of Samuel, the prophet of Israel, and all the men rise up and respond. However, how he does it doesn't convey positive connotations. Saul summons the tribes to battle by cutting oxen into pieces and sending them out with a threat. Saul sends good news of coming deliverance to Jabesh, and he soundly defeats the Ammonites, and he gives the glory to God showing mercy to his enemies before celebrating their victory with offerings to the Lord. But even in victory, there seems to be a prefiguring of future problems with Saul. Look again at verses 12 and 13 at the end of chapter 11. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Now, that sounds like a merciful act. Remember, the Ammonites are wicked, just as Israel is wicked. And it's okay if God, in his mercy, chooses to judge a wicked nation through an act of his people. But after the battle, some want to enact justice against these who spoke against Saul who threatened to mutilate the people in a city of Israel? And Saul says, just let them go. And he, he kind of couches it in a, oh, God's given us favor, so we should show grace to our enemies. Now, that is an expression of kindness, but is it the right expression that should have been done in that moment? We're going to see in chapter 15, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, Saul continues this trend, and Samuel rebukes him for it, because God had told them, and use them to fight their battles and wipe out their enemies. And Saul is not doing that. He failed to finish the task. He's not following through. Even as he courageously leads the Israelites into battle under the operation of the Spirit of God, he doesn't finish the job. Yet even here, there's mercy. Because we're reminded by the fact that Saul didn't finish his work, that our King Jesus did. Saul was going to prove to be the king that Israel wanted, but not the king they needed. We need a king who will fully conquer our foes, and our foes are not flesh and blood. Our foes are not people. Our foes are sin and death and Satan. And on the cross, Jesus defeated the tyrants who oppressed us, triumphing over them. He broke the shackles of sin and death. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he destroyed the works of the, devil, uh, of the devil. So in Saul's weakness, we see Christ's strength. In Saul's hesitation, we see Christ's resolve. In Saul's timidity, we see Christ's courage. In Saul's sin, we see Christ's righteousness. In Saul's anxiety, we see Christ's confidence. It's good to see King Jesus in contrast to others so that we would see his surpassing value. And when we read the book of Samuel, there are two ways to see what God, uh, God is up to. On the one hand, God gives the people what they want. 
delivering them over to the injustice and suffering that surely accompanies a human king, and they will experience that in the chapters ahead. It's unwise, God says to the people of Israel, and it'd be unwise if we were to do the same, to resist the kingdom of God. On the one hand, God is sovereignly unfolding a mystery that will ultimately lead to a much greater king. David first, and then David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ in time. Saul's reign is going to yield to David's, and David's reign is ultimately going to yield to Christ. And dear ones, let these chapters remind us, just as we saw last week, put not your trust in princes. Even the best of men are men at best. And even in these chapters, we see foreshadowings of what's going to happen to Saul eventually. Saul, for all of his physical attributes and for all of his height, couldn't competently administrate his own family, let alone a kingdom. When he's called, is found hiding among the baggage. And even when he's tasked with a military conquest, doesn't even finish the job. And so there is, in this very narrative, seeds of what Saul would become and what Israel would become under them. Dear ones, where does this leave us? We must choose our king wisely. Now, we don't have a physical king in our own land, nor are we living under the time of the Israelite monarchy. So we have to walk this backwards a little bit to see how this relates to us. But who is the dominant king of most people's lives, of our lives, even before we came to Christ? It was ourselves. We were the king, right? We called the shots in our own lives. We lived life according to our own patterns and thoughts and ways and if you live that life long enough you will deliver you will understand that i am not a competent administrator of my own life (laughs) there are things that i try to do that i think are right that fail there are things that i do and don't do and expect results from and these different things to happen and they don't happen or i forget and fail and Drop the ball again and again and again and again. We're more like Saul than we realize, don't we? We have the same heart that he had. A heart that often dresses up the outward appearance. Come to church looking all nice. We're handsome. We're tall. We look good. But inside, we're broken. We're sinful. We make a mess of things. We know it. And so let's not pretend that we're any different. Let's be reminded that when we live under our own kingship, we make a mess of things. But Christ, who came as our true king to reign over us, gives us life, gives us peace, conquers our enemies, gives us joy, and it has very little to do with who we are and how we've behaved and everything to do with the kind of king that he is. So, dear ones, if there's any among us kids, teenagers this morning, who've yet to recognize that Christ is the king we all need, may you bow the knee to him this morning. You will find more freedom and more joy under the kingship of Jesus than you could ever find in your own life as king. But in Christ, we have the king we need. 
The king that fully conquers all of our enemies. The king that succeeds in every single way that we fail. The king that's not found hiding among the baggage, but resolutely on the cross. The king that's not found looking for his lost sheep, but goes and seeks every one of them out and bears them on his shoulders and brings them home. Always keeps count of our, the hairs of our head are all numbered. He's the most competent administrator in all the world. And we, we follow him, we experience what it is to truly live life in the kingdom of God, which is what Israel was intended to experience, living life under the kingship of God. They failed, Christ succeeded, and we as the church get to represent our king and what it's like to have him as our king. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. Come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and this king will give you rest. For the first time, or for the 10,000th time. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you this morning for the reminder of our sinfulness, even portrayed here in the life of Saul. Saul needed a king. We need a king. When we try to be king of our own lives or our own kingdoms, as it were, we just we make a mess of things. We are we are selfish, we are driven by the wrong impulses, we don't finish the task, we hide in fear and cowardice, we don't make any demonstrable progress related to anything that's of worth and value in your kingdom. And so we recognize that again this morning, and we thank you for our greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the most competent and gracious and wonderful king in all the universe, that he's the mighty God, that he's the everlasting father, that he's the wonderful counselor, that he's the prince of peace. And we come again to him this morning. Jesus, we bow in submission to your everlasting kingship, and we thank you that we are citizens of your kingdom and children of your father. We thank you that you have adopted us and made us part of your kingdom, your everlasting kingdom, which will know no end. And Lord, while the kingdom of God right now suffers violence, the violent take it by force. We have to shove our way into the kingdom. There are so many obstacles against us, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. Narrow is the way. Narrow is the gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Lord, keep us on the narrow path that leads to life. Keep us in joyful submission to you as king. Bring us back when we stray. Lord, we worship you as our great king this morning, overall, And we rise to sing your praises, even to be dismissed under your benediction. We want to serve you this very week as your faithful citizens, your faithful subjects, showing what it's like to live under the reign of our King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.